welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. This episode is brought to you by our partners at Windwalk. Windwalk builds digital communities and the technologies necessary to accelerate them through their flagship software, Harbor. Harbor is an end-to-end community software that empowers community and marketing teams to delight users, measure success, and grow across an expanding number of digital channels. Harbor is a foundational technology loved by millions of gamers and integrated into the communities of the largest mobile, PC, and Web3 gaming products on the market. To learn more about this flagship product, simply head to harbor.gg or check out the details in the show notes. And with that, let's dive into the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Novik Roundtable. I'm your host, Devin Becker. And with me, I have excellent panelists, as always, the ever lively Aaron Bush. And we've got Timmy Levy here as well. We are we are one short, but not short on topics today. We've got a lot of great stuff to talk about. Uh, we got some, some big raises uh, here from InWorld. Playtica with an acquisition. EA, of course, coming in on the earnings, as we like to make sure we catch all those. Uh, the future of physical game retail. Good discussion there. And then some stuff on Battlebit Remastered. So we're going to, you know, we're just going to dive straight into it today, right into the meat of it with InWorld. Yeah, I love the diversity of, of topics today, but we can go ahead and jump in with um, InWorld. So they raised a new funding round led by Lightspeed. And so now InWorld AI has raised, I think, about $100 million at a now $500 million valuation. So big numbers now. And for those who don't recall, InWorld AI is building an AI-based character engine that will enable studios to develop intelligent, more nuanced NPCs and, and plug them into their games um, in different ways. And obviously, much of this funding will go towards hiring, towards R&D, building infrastructure. But it's also going to, to go towards launching an open source version of the, the character engine, which I think it's a smart move and it's pretty pretty interesting. And so, you know, launching an open source version of what they're building, I think it'll help them not only improve more quickly in public, but as a first mover to really do so in games, it's also going to be where a lot of the early uh, early movers in terms of game developers who want to embed um, AI NPCs into their games will kind of lean more in that direction um, initially, at least to see what's going on. But um, by learning in public, improving in public, being a first mover to do so and to get into the hands of, of developers, that's, a, I think, a pretty smart tactic for building early competitive advantages. Obviously, it's still very, very early days. And so there's much more to prove, um, you know, with InWorld specifically, but even AI more broadly in games on how how it gets developed and all the, the intricacies of doing so, where you draw the line on you know what NPCs can and can't do under different circumstances. And so it's still going to be the Wild West in, in some ways, but I think a smart move from, from InWorld. Um, and I guess the last thing I'll, I'll say um, is that 
four to five months ago, um, Nico, one of our great hosts, interviewed Kylan Gibbs, InWorld's co-founder and chief product officer. And I definitely recommend checking that out just to learn more about what exactly InWorld is building and how they're thinking about NPCs and games and what it means for developers looking to implement it, what the business models are, uh, et cetera. There's a lot of really good context in that episode. And I'm also, um, I'm trying to, to work up a future panel interview that um, should include someone from InWorld, but probably another company or two as well to just really dig into like the nuances of like embedding AI into games when it's still so early. What does that even mean? What are the tools to consider uh, the opportunities and challenges there? So I'd keep an eye out on that in the coming um, month or so. But, you know, this is uh, the biggest, you know, games X AI um, company now. So important to, to keep an eye on it going forward, I think. Yeah. And I, I, when I saw this, uh, I, you know, I've been trying to keep an eye on what, what in world is doing. Cause it's, it's like, it's super interesting to see where like true AI driven NPCs, uh, look like and where they go. Um, over the weekend, I was actually watching a, a short YouTube video kind of going over the quote unquote Sims AI, um, and you know, what, how it's evolved over time, even from like the early nineties and throughout the whole time, I was like, that is a very smart way of doing it, but that's not AI. That's an algorithm. It's like, I want to see like true like AI in NPCs and what that ends up, uh, um, doing to the whole game interaction in the world and how, uh, that all pans out and, and builds up. And now we have the technology to build that type of like actual AI, not just, an algorithm that, you know, has kind of all of these rule sets that are like still very manually tweaked and adjusted, even if, you know, they have formulas to it, that that's an algorithm, that's not an AI. So I'm very excited to, to see, uh, in world continue to grow and uh, build towards something that might be incredibly fun, incredibly, uh, complex, incredibly terrifying, or, you know, who who knows what the what the future holds? It's the wild west. It's gonna be gonna be <laughs> fun for those who can you know embrace some level of crazy um, before it it calms out. But I'm I'm excited for it too. I'm interested to see whether or not um, they start doing more from beyond just like NPC kind of stuff that like maybe is sometimes better scripted anyways uh, towards the like just allowing a little bit more free reign uh, because it makes me think of that. There's a lot of like. Uh, the AI stuff that had been trained to learn to play games, right? That was one of the, the the things that was a really great demonstrator of AI was was letting it play games because it's a constrained system that it could learn and it's a simulation. And so you got to wonder, like, obviously, you like you could train AI to like play like a player and uh, and you know emulate a player, right, or be a bot. But what about even like AI that plays the game but in a different way, like from the monster side of things, right? Like they could have NPCs that aren't just scripted or like guided, but actually learn how to play as a monster using its own set of monster rules in the simulation. So I, I'll be really interested to see where that stuff sort of goes because you, know, you bring up this this like idea of AI being not really AI before it was kind of procedural, like uh, designed around certain stuff, but like in a way we could still sort of do that, but with like, here's the, here's the rules that you follow when you learn how to play, but not the rules you have to follow in the sense of like prescriptive. So I don't know. I'm really interested to see where that goes, but I, I do wonder, Aaron, if you think uh, the, the going to open source uh, was one of those things that's like kind of trying to fend off uh, like 
the the criticism that a lot of this AI stuff gets when it's kind of closed uh, or even just something to try and deal with competitors. Because we've seen a bit of that in the space where, you know, the open source push, like we saw the, the Llama stuff come out uh, from Meta. Like it, it seems like that's a big like pushback against a lot of criticism of AI. Like does this seem like it's that sort of thing or is it just like contributing? Like what was it? Um, my guess is it's a bit of both. Um, I think that... Sure, there are some people who are more fearful of AI and, you know, when they can see it open and provide feedback and just understand how it works, it, you know, it, it assuages criticisms. Um, but really, I, I mean, I think most of it is probably more from just like the business model perspective of like just getting code into the hands of developers who want to play with it is a big deal. Um, and we've seen other like massively successful software companies, um, you know, start with open source in in the past and just kind of use that as an onboarding tool to then get onto like enterprise level offerings um, that have up, upgraded features and such like a MongoDB um, or, or others. And so um, I sort of think it's probably more important from the business model perspective, but it certainly doesn't hurt having it in in the open. And I, I mean, it's, it's about like it, like in-game NPCs. So it's not the same level of um, what an open AI, <laughs> you know, is working on, um, for example. But I, I just think it's a good business decision above all. But we'll see. Cool. Well, hopefully that works out uh, because obviously we would hate to see AI flop fast, right? <laughs> It'd be good if we actually get some some traction out of this for maybe a year or two at least, maybe get some good progress uh, before we end up in any kind of hype cycle movement. But uh, speaking of spending a ton of money, uh, we also have Playtika with an acquisition for a decent chunk of change. Uh, yeah, so Playtika announced their next acquisition. Uh, interesting enough, their next earnings call is on August 8th. So this comes kind of like a, at a good time to have them talk about it more and kind of comment about, you know, yes, we're still on our kind of acquisition strategy, uh, very focused kind of earnings call uh, next week. But uh, just to go over the um, you know deal terms uh, and what the acquisition entails. So they uh, announced that they're going to be acquiring uh, Assyrian's uh, Yoda Games portfolio. So a quick debrief on, on who these folks are. So Assyrian e is a um, company that's been focused more on digital advertising and just entertainment in general. They've done and kind of dabbled on gaming a little bit over the last few years through some acquisitions. They acquired the team be uh, behind Pabo Hotel. Uh, they acquired Spill Games, uh, they have uh, another platform called gamedistribution.com, but that kind of has fallen to kind of second, third priority for them over, uh, you know, what's really taken over for them is the, the digital advertising side of things. Um, so them thinking about, okay, we have this portfolio of games, uh, specifically the, the Yoda games makes sense uh, for them to not, you know, if we are not focusing on it to sell the assets. So, the the portfolio of games is mostly poker card casino games. So when you think about it, perfect fit for Playtika's core gaming uh, expertise. 
And uh, the structure of the deal is they're going to do $89.4 million upfront. And uh, they have kind of up to $165 million uh, in terms of performance-based earnouts. So what's interesting is, you know, they, they've been, they were very transparent about the upfront versus the performance-based earnout. I think that uh, when I read that, to me, that reads as Playtika has kind of some confidence on the games being not live service at kind of like their optimal state. So whether it's, you know, they're not doing, um, you know, aggressive, as aggressive live ups as Playtika would do, there's a lot of revenue optimization to be done. There's a lot of potentially like user acquisition optimization to do. So I, I really read that as as they have confidence in them being able to grow the games. Um, there's no notes on the current team coming over, so it it sounds like it's very much an uh, asset only acquisition. Um, and you know the the games that Yoda has been running right now, uh, they have been super stable for the last three plus years. So. I think that there's they are starting from a very stable base and something that they can potentially grow, especially with their three top games being uh, poker. Honestly, their top game governor of poker is ninety percent of the revenue of the the whole portfolio, and it's at around like two million monthly in revenue. Um, so it has it has potential to grow, especially if it's a solid uh, poker game. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the, the gist of the, of the acquisition. Uh, you know, there were a few episodes back where we were reviewing the, the Playtika earnings, uh, in with all the, you know, closing down new projects and cost reductions and all kind of the news that they've, uh, Playtika and a lot of, uh, these companies are, have been aggressively acquiring in the past, uh, kind of pulling back a little bit, one of the questions that we had is like, where where do they go next and how do they actually grow if they're not uh, building new games? And it, this feels like it's much more in line with what their core competency is, which is, you know, they're going to bring in the, the set of, of games and potentially, you know, really be focused on growing them and uh, optimizing and really running aggressive live ops on, on them. Well, given the strategy shift, uh, where they're not releasing new games, and as you said, this maybe aligns better with what they're what they're trying to do. Do you expect more acquisitions of this type then in the future? Like maybe not right away, but maybe within the next year. Uh, I think it's it's very possible. I do think it's very possible that they go and seek more of the asset only acquisitions. Uh, it's it's clear that uh, also based on how Playtika has done their acquisitions and been very aggressive at uh, maximizing for profit and closing down studios, I think they're going to have uh, trouble finding studios that would come come on board unless like they their values align perfectly. Or you know, business the way of, of operating business wise aligns perfectly with Playtika. I do think that they're going to have a hard time finding studios that would be excited to join Playtika as a complete like as a full studio. That you know, the first thing that they're going to think about is like when when are they going to close this down and move over all our games to to some other team. So I think that if they want to keep doing acquisitions, like that's this is their best bet and this is their best path forward is finding under 
uh, served or underserviced games that have that are stable, that have potential to grow, that they know how to um, live ops and really put their team behind it. Yeah, I mean, I guess I have a, a couple thoughts on this. I mean, I, I mean, first, I think that was really well summarized. Um, I mean, my thought is one: like this is a pretty small acquisition in the big scheme of Playtica, even though it's down a ton from its highs. It still is a four billion plus size company, um, and so this is still less than five percent of you know what the value of Playtica. So I don't think it's a massive needle mover. Um, also, I mean, this is a Playtica has emphasized in the past that it it really wants to move away from casino and get more diversity elsewhere. Um, but because this is a small move, I don't think it really hurts that too badly. And also, like they kind of have fumbled other opportunities elsewhere, anyways. So maybe it, getting back to their roots, um, someone at Playtica recognizes actually is their their better chance. Um, to when when they can get a good deal, um, and maybe this is a good deal. I don't know. Um, the one thing about the deal that strikes me as interesting is how wide the range of the acquisition value is. Where the guaranteed was like eighty nine, ninety million, but it basically the earnout like doubles it, and that's like a pretty like a double um, is a pretty stark you know, difference in big range that really could go a lot of directions. And obviously we don't know the details of, you know, what triggers different levels of earnout, but um it seems like they are protecting themselves um and ensuring that if they're gonna pay more, it has to be because there there was outperformance. Um so so I thought that was interesting. Um of course Platika still is in a pretty um rough shape, I think. Um I mean, Tammy mentioned that if they want to do more acquisitions, um, it's kind of tough because of the reputation they've developed and how probably not that many teams really want to go sell themselves to Playtica. And this might be different because someone else is selling what isn't a priority to them anymore to Playtica. Maybe it was an easier justification. Um, But... Even that said, if Playtico wants to do more deals, they still are a bit handicapped by their balance sheet. Um, and so again, it's a $4 billion company. Um, and currently they have 700 something million in cash, but they have 2.4 billion or so in debt. And so still like half of the value of the company is in debt right now. And so that just limits the magnitude of of what they can really do as a company to to bring anything else needle moving. So maybe we see more of these smaller deals. Um, really, they need to figure things out more organically. I think how to um, you know launch new games and maybe build new internal studio or two um, to kind of trigger organic growth. That doesn't just mean paying a lot of money to acquire someone else and hurt the balance sheet further. Um, especially because I don't think their cash flow production is very, very robust either um, right now. So, so anyways, it's an it's an interesting deal. It's I guess another small milestone for Playtica. But if they want to have bigger milestones, I think it still is going to be a a tougher slog, is my guess. Yeah, I, I agree, and and I think that what's what's very stark is that. Um... The, the the piece that you mentioned in like new games, right? Like they they don't seem to be 
at least from from what they've announced and what they've shared publicly, they don't seem very focused on the new games side of things. Which honestly is like it, that's what moves the needle uh, to get kind of like that next like step, right? Like we even see it with with you know a lot of a lot of companies. Like even if they're let, let's take Supercell as like the, the uh, golden child of trying new games to find like that next hit. Like you have to try to to find kind of like that next step function, and they don't seem to be really investing in that part of the business at all so it it is it is interesting in terms of you know where they're kind of like in this like slog stable kind of down kind of up kind of just cruising but how do they get out of that um and eventually like the games are gonna decline like that that happens right so what's gonna replace uh that decline yeah, it's tough. Um, I mean, I do know to their credit. I mean, they own like Wooga and Wooga. You know, they. I could. I know they have tried to to make you know several games and several have gone into soft launch. And I'm sure there's others around the the company, two other subsidiaries I have that have tried, and they just like haven't made it out of soft launch for not hitting their the needed KPIs to, to justify further investment. So I think some of it too has just kind of been the nature of mobile and them struggling kind of with the new economic dynamics of scaling. Um, but yeah, it does put themselves between a rock and a hard place. If on one hand, they're struggling with organic growth to make games that hit the KPIs that they want to move the needle and justify reinvestment. And then on the other side, not be able to acquire growth otherwise at, at scale. So um so yeah, it's interesting. And maybe a, an acquisition like like this kind of points to where it's like, well, it's not a huge budget value and Platika has something to offer that can help scale what they already know works and they can unlock more value there than than elsewhere. But yeah, curious to see how the Platika story plays out over the next few years. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the the Wooga thing and then also Supercell being mentioned because both of them are still have, have not launched a game out of soft launch for a long time now, like Supercell continually struggles with it. Like Clash Mini is like almost there, right? And then you had those games that they put out the um, the uh, the the one where it was like a whole bunch of them. The name's escaping me right now, but uh, and then also the the Battle Royale kind of one that they tried it kind of at the same time, and just none of them seem to be getting past that point. And it and it seems to be as you said, Aaron, it's sort of endemic of the the mobile like industry in general right now. And it makes me kind of wonder, like, do does then like do we end up in a situation where they just can't take the risk on trying to find that themselves because they're continually burning money just trying to develop those over and over and instead they go hey like let's let's look for someone who's really developing something that's already got traction and potential like that's already made it past that soft launch phase so they've done that for us and we could just take the money we were going to spend on our R&D and development and stuff and just pick them up because we've got the cash that they don't have to be able to like just leapfrog that step or, or we just need some new genres or some new user acquisition methods. But it seems like the whole, that that whole industry is just kind of spinning in circles right now, trying to figure out some way to move forward. And everyone's kind of in this stalling pattern. I mean, it it just seems like either something's got to change or the strategy has got to change in terms of how they go about the the business side of things. Uh, Since it's just, you know, even just announcing we're not even going to make new games from Playtika. Like that's, 
pretty desperate and you even got like, you know, voodoo kind of stuck in their weird place where they're like, oh, hyper casual is not working anymore. So like, we're going to try and pivot like there's all these kinds of things across the space. So like, I don't know, I'm, I'm really curious to see where it goes because it seems like we're kind of at crossroads for all of mobile right now. So definitely, definitely exciting times. But uh, speaking of earnings, as you mentioned, the, the earnings call for Playtika, we had one for EA. So some great stuff to dig in there as always. Yeah, um, and this one can probably be kept briefer. Um, so this quarter for EA, bookings were up 21%, earnings per share jumped 32%. Um, that was really driven by two things. One, the continued outperformance of FIFA, and we covered the whole rebrand to EA Sports FC last week. And second, the launch of Star Wars Jedi Survivor, which is seemingly selling well and it's outperforming the original game. Um, otherwise, it just kind of looks like business as usual for EA right now. The company generates high margin profits. The business is stable. They return you know, some value to shareholders via dividends and share repurchases regularly. Um, and even with the, the never-ending game of executive musical chairs, the core EA engine um, is still chugging along. Um, I guess I would say from an investor perspective, the big question to ask for EA is just where will long-term growth come from in the future? Because um, this quarter, the 21% quarterly growth is nice, um, but if you zoom out of a big one-off launch quarter, it, the growth is way lower from an annualized view. And guidance for for next year is basically um, calling for flat-ish performance. Um, so, you know, what is that growth engine? It's probably not mobile. EA has dropped the ball there multiple times. Um, Maybe it's some combination of fostering existing franchises like they did with Star Wars Jedi or maybe how they'll innovate on The Sims or how FC, uh, yay, FC will have higher margins. But um, it also probably will have to come from new things, too. Um, and so uh, I guess we'll see what that means. Probably the best thing we can point to right now are like upcoming Marvel games, like like what they're doing with Iron Man and Black Panther, which are just new and on top of like the other IPs that they own and they're building on like a, like a dragon age um, or like, you know, the upcoming Sims five game, for example, or perhaps there'll be things that we don't see, like how they launched apex legends out of nowhere and literally no one saw that coming. I'm sort of skeptical of that, but I think that's the big question of just where will the growth come from? Like what are the new projects um, that, that can lead this company to higher heights than it already is right now, even though the business is already um, a fundamentally great company. Um, so, so that's just kind of what I'm, I'm thinking about with EA as we kind of look at the results from, from right now, but, um, that's my summary. Not sure if either of you have anything you want to add about EA. It's pretty, pretty straightforward, but happy to discuss or move on. Yeah. I mean, I, I just curious on your take on the battlefield franchise future and dice in general where they fit into things i know they had some shakeups uh bringing over i think it was vince from respawn who was formerly from call of duty and all that stuff like to try and shape things up better and i know they had like some plans they wanted to reorganize what they were thinking with that but do you think after like the the, the big huge you know flub that was 2042 and like losing a lot of people over time that there's still future in that franchise? I don't have a strong take on the Battlefield franchise. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, obviously, they also closed the mobile game 
and just shut that that down. So the scope of the franchise has diminished. I don't think it's a franchise they want to let go of by any means. So I think you know it still is their flagship shooter, um, and they'll they'll do what they can to turn it around and create something steady and and stable from it is is my guess but you know as we'll talk later with you know battle bit remastered even like there are other games out there that are kind of scratching that itch for players and kind of with different approaches so um i think whatever they do they'll have to come out strong and it's not you know it doesn't have the same weight as a call of duty or something like that i guess i'm probably underselling apex when i say flagship shooter too but um yeah, I don't think they'll let go of it, but I don't have a strong take on what exactly they'll do to revive it or change the team from here. Yeah, I guess I'll be interested to see because you mentioned Apex and that comes from Respawn, who was, you know, like I said, Vince, I believe, uh, I, I can't remember how to pronounce his last name, starts with a Z, uh, came over from Respawn and like kind of took over, it sounded like Battlefield. And, you know, feel free to like email us at podcast at novic.co if I'm slightly off on those details. Uh, but I believe that's what was going on, right? And so I, I'm just interested to see if that could mean something positive because even though Titanfall probably didn't do as well, for example, as uh, Respawn would have liked, it was an amazing game uh, and like showed a lot of potential that then went into Apex as you said, that just came out of nowhere. So I don't know, like I, I, I'm kind of curious, especially because of the the previous problems with Battlefield 4, where it launched pretty much in a similar state of just failure and then was like slowly pulled out and then is like, still played to this day because people love what it turned into. I don't know if that could happen with 2042, given the damage done, but having played it myself more recently, it was like a lot better. And so I don't know. I'm just kind of like, I think battlefront probably is donezo. Like as far as the star Wars stuff goes, I think they kind of lost that uh, license, I believe. So probably no more of those, but at least battle battlefield in general, you know, maybe has something left there, but. I guess we'll see. Like uh, I'm, I'm hopeful because it's a franchise that I that I enjoy as well. But uh, I don't know. They've they've goofed it a few times, so, so we'll see where that goes. But uh, speaking of the future of things that uh, may or may not have a future, I think we want to dig a little bit into a topic that's been slowly brewing, which is the future of uh, physical games, especially in retail stores, which has slowly been kind of getting eroded, especially with uh, GameStop. So there was a couple of different uh, news items that. I think kind of brought this topic up. One was that Tesco was actually going to just straight up stop selling uh, physical games in their stores to free up the the retail shelf space for other goods, which uh, is an interesting thing to happen, you know, where just an entire chain, just like, you know what, just not making enough money off it. We're going to make more money off of other stuff that we sell. Let's move on to that. And of course, like, could that lead to other uh big box stores and things like that, uh, considering doing that, could we see Target go, you know what, margins aren't there for us, we need the shelf space, you know, scoot it out of there, or Walmart or any of these other companies uh, decide that that's just maybe not profitable or not profitable enough. And then we've also got GameStop continuing to struggle uh, with the CFO already leaving uh, they just the continued turnover there, uh, what, what looks to be like a bit of a tailspin, you know, they've tried pivots uh, into things like to, to get more into the digital space where they realized, well, maybe physical is not going to have the future we hope it does. You know, they tried with Congregate. They've tried to do all these other digital things. They've tried to get into to the Web3 side of things with NFTs and digital games. And it seems like they, they've known the writings on the wall for them for a while. And they keep trying to do stuff. But I, I feel like one of the one of the big uh, the hallmarks that I, that I see is like, Whenever I go into a GameStop store, just plushies, t-shirts, selling Magic the Gathering cards, like 
Pokemon cards, they're, they've drifted like we're to almost a third of the store now, depending on the store you go into, is non-video game merchandise. Now, it's still tangential, of course, to video games, right? It's still like the culture and things like that. But at the same time, I could probably go to Hot Topic or Box Lunch or a number of other stores and find video game clothing and merch. Uh, and then it, it kind of leaves you wondering what's the point of this other than to come in here to pre-order games, which, of course, you know, generally doesn't work out well for most people that do it. Uh, so, that you know, that's another issue that's, that's come up. And then also we, we have some games starting to go digital only now. Like there was a couple of them, but one of the ones that was, I think, one of the bigger AAA ones that was considering doing so was Alan Wake 2, which was in a little bit of a unique situation uh, because it's being published by Epic. Uh, and like their kind of new publishing label. There was some things around them not really having the greatest pipeline for retail, them wanting to like kind of not take such a big hit on all the costs associated with manufacturing and all the distribution, all that on top of the cut that Microsoft or Sony is going to take. And also, of course, they have their own storefront on uh, digital on PC, which of course PC has, I, I think, you know, traditionally tr- drifted further from physical uh, retail sales than console has. So, you know, that makes sense there. You've got pretty much Steam and Epic mostly controlling that that storefront. So I think there's a lot to unpack there in terms of different issues, different like directions people are going. Uh, but, but I'd love to know your guys' thoughts on where you see the future of this going and whether or not we're like kind of in the middle of something or this is just hard times. Yeah, I can start. I mean, I think physical sales are going to, continue, you know, easing towards zero um, at, at some distant point in the future. That's the trajectory it's been on for the past 10, 20 years at this point. And I don't think the next 10 to 20 years are going to be any different. And a company like GameStop really is just a zombie. Um, and before we recorded, I know you you even had some thoughts and parallels to Blockbuster, Devin, in saying that... Um, you know, what you see with GameStop selling just merch today, just trying to find other things to sell, similar to to, to Blockbuster's final final moments before they became irrelevant. And I think maybe we'll be mentioning GameStop in the future, the, the way people joke about Blockbuster now, right? It'll just become one of those. Remember GameStop? Yeah, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. The difference is that GameStop got so miraculously and super weirdly lucky by becoming a meme stock, right? Where just Reddit just fundamentally changed the value of this company for no fundamental reason <laughs> whatsoever. And through through that, the company at like much higher stock prices was just able to raise money in public markets. And so this is a company that still has like over a billion dollars in cash on its balance sheet. Even and even though it continues to lose money year after year and close its store count or, or you know reduce its store count year after year, it's able to manage the bleed so effectively just because it, because it was a meme, and so they still have another decade or so where they don't have to be worried and they can just continue to test and iterate. Uh, honestly, probably they should feel more of a sense of urgency than they do. And you've talked about the revolving door of leadership. Um, uh, Warren Buffett has a quote that when, um, uh, and I'll, I'll butcher the specifics, but it's basically like when a bad business meets great management, the reputation of the business <laughs> is what remains intact. And that's exactly what is happening with Blockbuster. It doesn't matter if you have seven CEOs. Um, if your business is fundamentally broken and not built for the future, 
Um, it doesn't really matter what you do. And I don't know if there is a clear way to blow it up. Maybe they can turn it into more of a game store and also sell board games and, you know, Magic the Gathering games, have more little events or stuff. I don't I don't know. Maybe there is some path, uh, but no one's been able to crack that code yet. And and bigger picture. Right. Like seeing like an Alan Wake 2, it is different circumstances, but it is like the beginning of seeing AAA games recognize, you know, we could actually still do okay just going digital. There are now consoles sold um, that don't have disc slots anymore. And I think it's, you know, just the like the trend towards, you know, five, 10 years from now, the next generation, like disc becoming even less important. Um, and, you know, in the same way today, like if you're still into DVDs, you can still find your Blu-ray versions somewhere. But with, you know, the emergence of like new business models like Netflix and subscription um, and just the different ways that people even get content and how it's made, it just changes the way that people even buy it in the first place, too. So I am I mean, extremely bearish on physical. I don't know. I feel like if you're if you're not super bearish, I, I would have questions. But um, anyways, those are my quick, quick thoughts. Yeah, and I think that um, to to GameStop specifically, um, and uh, I I did get to experience some of it as part of Congrade, but uh, you know they've they really uh, I mean they've been understanding that physical and retail gaming is going away for more than a decade now. Like they when they acquired Congrade in 2010, they acquired like a bunch of other. I forget it specifically like around that time, but like digital kind of forward businesses. Um, they also were trying to dabble on like, okay, let's see if we don't do games only if we focus on our retail strength, they went and acquired spring mobile, which was cell phones off of AT&T. Uh, and then they went uh, and moved towards the collectibles uh, piece when they acquire ThinkGeek, which is the piece that we now see in in the source, right? It's like that carried over from that ThinkGeek uh, acquisition. I think that what they've they've never had a strategy, or or at least like looking from the outside, never thought on how to actually like understand like what is our biggest asset of hey, we are a physical space where gamers want to go, and how do we leverage it instead of just like how do we sell more stuff? And I think like that's always been the the problem with you see it with GameStop, you see it with Blockbuster. Like they they don't quite really appreciate what their biggest um, asset is. And at this point, that ship has sailed because now people don't like correlate GameStop as like a place to gather around physically with excitement for like the next big game, right? Like that used to be it. Now it's like that's no longer the thing. So I think like the it's it's going to be that that excruciating downward trend that we're gonna see with GameStop. But just from like the trajectory that they've been on, like it doesn't seem like they're they're grasping like how to reinvent their business or leverage um their IP or their or their assets. Uh specific like more broadly to physical games, I do think that we're now kind of like in this um, pivotal kind of moment where technology is coming together to make, to fully make physical games obsolete with 
uh, Wi-Fi speeds being what they are today, like even when it's slow in in some uh, developing countries, it's still now it's starting to like pick up in terms of speeds. Uh, the hardware now has you know uh, the space like it's not <laughs> expensive, like crazy expensive to have um, you know enough storage space to have your whole collection of you know triple a games on uh just downloaded and saved on the hardware instead of having to do uh dvd cds and just the availability of platforms to be able to you know go in and find the games that you want and download them from steam to you know microsoft playstation stores like now all of that is like that technology is all coming together um, where, you know, it just, I think it's, it's pushing, like it, it's, it's that accelerating moment of like, okay, we can actually start doing without the, the physical game itself. And, you know, even generationally, like it, I'm going to sound, uh, old here, but you know, kids these days, they don't understand what a DVD is. Like they, they see a DVD and they're like, what the hell is this? Like eventually like that's, that's it. Right. Like, you know, we're going to have this slow decline as uh, that generation grows and like, they are not going to expect to buy something physically. They want like immediately, they want it downloaded on their device, whatever their device is. And that's how you get games. So I do think it's kind of like this pivotal moment where both uh, generationally technology and kind of all these pieces are coming together to really make physical games obsolete. Yeah, I in, in a parallel, like I probably haven't used a DVD since I was, you know, like in my childhood home. <laughs> but I ate lunch with my dad this weekend and he was super excited to tell me that he bought the Blu-ray edition of Waterworld, <laughs> and he was so excited to add it to his 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 collection. Um, and, and so, you know, like they're with games, you know, twenty years from now, even there still might be people who are, you know, excited to add something to their their collection, and they view it more as a collection um, than just a a means of playing. So, you know, it's not going to zero imminently, um, obviously, but uh, it, it's just kind of a Kind of a funny, funny aside, but the other piece of this that I feel like might be underrated in the discussion and could be a next tipping point is Game Pass, um, and specifically, um, and this is this is less of a comment on the viability of subscription or whether it's good or bad for for the industry, but just think about Call of Duty, right? Call of Duty is a game that probably drives more physical sales than anything but if you put it into a subscription model where suddenly for a bunch of people it makes a lot more sense just to be part of a subscription to get call of duty and a lot of other things there probably is going to be another change and you know who even wants to buy call of duty standalone (laughs) which then even removes the question of how do you buy it um when it's standalone and so i don't know where exactly Game Pass or other subscriptions are going to go in the future and whether other, you know, mega franchises like a Call of Duty will kind of get sucked into where that question is viable. I, I mean, probably with Bethesda, even like a Starfield, that's a question too. Like you could buy the physical copy or just be in Game Pass and get it along with everything else. And so I, I that's kind of my guess of where we'll see like 
where the next big drop offs happen in physical sales with some of these like leading leading IPs. Uh, but beyond that, probably just a slow trickle. Well, here's the twist because there's there's actually like some some strong benefits for game developers, assuming they can get the same or at least relatively close to the same level of sales. In that, first off, like when you have to physically manufacture a disc, ship it out, deal with retail distribution, all that stuff. We already went through all the supply chain issues of COVID that still haven't been completely solved. We've still got all, all kinds of strikes affecting a lot of that stuff. There's all these issues with that. And and then you have to deal with like, do we did we overprint? Did we underprint? Did we get enough pre-orders to really like understand what the demand for this looks like? That sort of thing, right? That's one one risk. The other is used sales cannibalizing your game sales, right? Which was, you know, GameStop's model, which was, hey, we'll buy your games and then we'll sell them back to other players for nearly twice the price uh, as what we bought them from, but it's cheaper than what you bought the game for. Now, obviously that was, you know, great for annual games, right? Like annual sports games or Call of Duty games, stuff like that. That was, a, am sure, a big thing, but it was like one of those things that benefited players way more than game developers and game developers generally hated. I'm sure there were exceptions, but more often than not, they were like, this sucks because... Uh, you know, people are just basically flipping it, you know, when they're done with it. And obviously they tried to do things to make it online and require a disc and, you know, tied to an account, all kinds of stuff like that. But obviously if you just don't sell a physical copy, that just can't happen, right? It's none of these digital services are allowing any kind of resale outside of like a one web three experiment we won't even get into. Uh, so in general, like it's just not happening, right? And therefore, like that risk is gone. The other risk of retail distribution, you're literally printing on demand. Like when someone downloads a game, like you just give it them then. Like you don't have to pre-print the copies for digital distribution, right? Like it just doesn't happen. That being said, you have like this kind of weird hybrid, which is like the cards that that go into stores. So like games that are digital only that still want some retail shelf space, like indie games, like say something like, you know, Cuphead, it might have eventually gotten a physical version, but at least at first, you know, you, you'd see just the card in, in Target and I'm sure other places. I think GameStop does the cards as well, where it's just a download code. And I've even seen sometimes physical games where you, where you buy them and you just get a code in the box, which is like the weirdest thing. Like I remember that even happening, I think with... Uh, Mario Maker 2, when I got it with like the, the kit with like, I think it was Switch or something like that, it just came with the code. Like it was a box and everything, but like, here's the code to download the game. You, like in a way that's kind of good. Cause like, I guess you get the day one patch already part of it, right? Like it's already updated. You don't have to install or like put it in the disc and then still update it. But it's, it's still like this weird in-between spot that we've had to, like paralleling that with like DVDs and, and Blu-rays, DVDs and Blu-rays are still sold, right? Sold, right? They never really completely phased out, partially, as you said, because of like collectors and, and the kinds of features that they put on those and people want it on a shelf space and all that. But also there was never like the codes the same way, like Voodoo and some other ones tried to do the codes with like the things, but then half of those went out of business. Like Ultraviolet, I think even went down. And like, I remember even like getting emailed from Target, like, sorry, the thing that we sold you doesn't work anymore. You could try and transition it over to this other thing uh, because like they couldn't even keep it up with these services. Instead, they just all want you to go to like, you know, iTunes or Amazon or whatever, buy stuff that way for, for on demand. So it's an interesting parallel where at least they have the in-between with video games because they had CD keys was something that existed, you know, like way before DVDs even existed. So there was like already like a precedent for that where like CD keys just turned into download codes basically. And Steam obviously helped push that as well, right? With activation codes and stuff. So, I mean, I guess I'm kind of interested to see like, 
at this point, I think, as you said, Aaron, it's like inevitable, right? It's like, it's more, more just a question of like when and what happens in the meantime, does it just become a collectible s- sort of thing? I mean, we're already struggling with like the prices, right? Being too low for games where they're having to like find other ways to monetize after you buy it and stuff like that. So it's like, eh, might as well just make it all digital only cut out any costs or risks they have any cannibals, any cannibalization and uh, maybe even, like you said, put it as part of a subscription thing to even further mitigate risk, right? Because then it's just, oh, well, we get some money, you know, off of the the Game Pass or whatever it is to help cover our production costs, potentially, depending on the deal they strike. So I don't know, but a, a lot of question marks, but I also, I guess, as you said, kind of an inevitable cliff for the space. And then I guess maybe some boutique, like game, you know, physical game collectibles that we do see, like, you know, those ones where you could get like a, a limited run. I think it's, that's what it's called, limited run, uh, where you just get like the, the limited special edition collector's box kind of things for games. I guess that's that's the future of, of physical games at this point. But. Vintage. It's going to become vintage. <laughs> well, yeah, and that's the thing is, it's like we talk, you talk about the used games, right, and that, that sort of thing, right? And that's where GameStop starts business. But you also see... Like those games, as well as use DVDs and stuff, end up at thrift stores, end up in like Dimple Records or like uh, what used to be Tower Records, those those kind of stores that will sell like old stuff. And so it's like, I guess that's where like GameStop doesn't need to exist because those already exist to be that marketplace for people that want to buy like used games or, or like you said, they become just retro collectibles. And you go to like stores that are selling like N64 games next to like, you know, the the, the last remaining physical games. It's like, where I still see the last remaining physical boxed copies of PC games half the time. It's a, I don't know, interesting space, but uh, bummer for GameStop, uh, you know, being in the business. I'm interested to see uh, if Ryan Cohen does anything because he's been slowly taking over the business, uh, it seems like. So he definitely thinks there's something there, but it does seem like it's going towards digital anyway. So I don't know, wait, wait and see. But speaking of retro, Battlebit Remastered, a game I think we've talked around a few times, but I think we wanted to really dive into now that it's become quite a bit of a hit. Yeah, uh, it's a cool story. And for those who don't know, Battlebit Remastered is a a low-poly multiplayer FPS game that can support 254-person servers. Um, It's sort of like a lower-fidelity Battlefield, also without, you know, the aggressive in-game monetization is kind of how they want to position themselves. But what's cool is that this game was built by three developers over the past seven years. They started in 2016 with Battlebit, which had a lot of you know issues and the early playtests and such. So early access was stalled. Then it took four more years of development and marketing to launch a revamped playtest and you know to reach 100 concurrent players for the first time. And over that time, you know the team was supported via Patreon. Um, but it wasn't until the beginning of this year that you know, notable streamers and personalities started, you know, finding and bringing attention to the game. Um, and then, you know, the game launched on June 15th. Um, so, you know, a month and a half ago for fourteen Uh And since then has garnered really positive reviews, has been climbing up the charts. Um, and it was announced that two weeks after the game launched that it sold 1.8 million units, which is about 30 million or so um, in revenue. And that was a month ago. And the game currently is still holding up at, you know, the number 11 spot on the Steam top sellers chart. And it's still seeing uh, 35,000 peak concurrent daily players. So um, it really has become a pretty, you know, great 
success story and major props to to the swell team for for turning it into a win. Um, but really, I think there are a few takeaways rolling through my mind and we can discuss whichever ones sound most interesting to you. One is just, you know, again, like how much does fidelity really matter in games, right? And sh- should more teams be building, especially their first games, more in this um, type of way? Um, so that's that's one thought. Um, you know, second is just that success was a long and grueling process to pull off um, in, in this case. And so is, is this actually a, a model that more developers should be thinking about um, pursuing even despite the, the, the success that came about? And then lastly, just kind of almost on the flip side of, of that last point is that you know, despite the rise in venture capital, even across gaming, we continue to see small teams, small companies like this prove that you can create hits that top the charts, even in, you know, multiplayer modes without raising any venture money whatsoever. Or in this case, I think even really working with a publisher. Um, And so those are kind of like the main talking points in my head. Um, But I'm curious, you know, when you see this story, like what stands out to you and like what does it point to more more broadly kind of about where we are in the games industry right now yeah for me for me i think it really highlights like just some pillars about what game development should really be about uh whether you're like a small team or a big team and that is that you need a good game first and foremost like that's that's always going to be the most important pillar for making a successful game business. You know, granted, good games sometimes fail, but, you know, you don't need like flashy uh, art, flashy graphics, or, you know, the the, the fanciest um engine or you know this huge marketing budget to really have you know a very successful game on your hands if the game is good i think that part of a good game is also understanding who your audience is like be very clear of what kind of game you're making and what audience you're serving cuz with that you can actually make sure that it's a game that's fun to play for that audience and that even if you go to kind of like this more low fidelity, um, you know, lower the quality, quote unquote, quality bar for the game, you can understand what that, what's acceptable for that audience um, and what's going to still be interesting and fun to watch for that audience. And the third piece is, uh, again, with understanding who your audience is, is that through that you can actually nurture and grow your community and yeah it was not like an overnight hit like they did as you said Aaron it's like six grueling years of slow and steady game development and community building and just this slow 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 growth uh, that you can only achieve if you actually understand who your community is you can actually reach your community and you know grow it uh much more organically in in that way so i think that it's it really for me it's like it highlights kind of like all those points like hit games are not made over time 
you really need to have a good game first and foremost. Um, and then I think that you can start thinking about, you know, where do you compromise in all these, these different areas, whether it's like getting creative on, on how you reach your community and you, you know, you don't have marketing budget. So how, how are you going to make a splash and whatnot when you, when you launch the game or, you know, low fidelity, lower the quality bar. Like I think that all of that is very available to game developers. Like I think like that constraint of like, Hey, it has to be super high quality and you have to have this big marketing budget. It's, it's very much a, uh, it's not, it's, it's a constraint that we put on ourselves. Players time and time again, show that if the game is fun to play, they will play it uh, if, you know, if you reach the right audience. So it's kind of like that match, right? It's like fun to play, reach my right audience, they will play it and they'll see past any kind of rough, rough edges. Um, the other piece to it is like, it it has been very much talked about uh, on TikTok and, uh, you know, Twitch and like all these other social media places. And I think it's like part of that being fun to play is that if it's fun to play, it'll probably be fun to watch and have these memeable moments, but you can't manu like necessarily manufacture those. Like you have to like, they have to be authentic. So I think that one, one downside of watching games like uh battle bit remastered is for developers and teams to think, okay, how do I create like these moments? that will be like, very memeable on TikTok. And if they're not authentic, they're going to wear out very quickly, very rapidly, and not really have kind of like that staying power of like someone watches that, tries the game, and sticks around to play it. Yeah, I, I have like a very simple philosophy when it comes to fidelity, like which is which is summed up as like the fidelity of the, of the graphics needs to be matched by the fidelity of the gameplay. And what I mean are the game mechanics. And so it's like you have these games with these like super great like graphics, you know, 4K, HD, all that stuff, but they're mostly just set dressing. The actual mechanics, like if you actually took the the mechanics of the game, you could still do it in BattleBit style, right? Because it the, the graphics aren't actually generally enhancing any of the mechanics of the game. They're almost always like at best animations that look nice to represent things that you could represent as block people or whatever, because at the end of the day, you're just communicating feedback back to the player. It, it doesn't need to be high, high fidelity. Now, obviously people appreciate, you know, like nice graphics, right? That it certainly doesn't hurt, but I think it's kind of funny with, with examples like battle bit, because you could like directly contrast it to battlefield uh, is the, the expectations. Uh, so when you see something like battlefield, you have certain expectations for the gameplay. When you see something like battle bit, you don't, Right. You're like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll be lucky if this thing works. And when it does and when it works, like sometimes better than Battlefield, you're you're just blown away. Like you just dopamine's firing off because you're like, whoa, this exceeded my expectations. Like I am really excited now. And that is a huge driver for this game, I think, personally, having played it and seeing like, oh, yeah, it's cool. Like it's I mean, it's not like, you know. 10 times better than Battlefield, but it, it does some of the small things better. And I think that goes to the other thing with the, the team of three people and the low fidelity means it can it can pivot towards things that people actually want, where I feel like the Battlefield games have gotten really kind of out of touch with what people actually want. 
and they're just this big lumbering beast moving forward, they can't pivot. They can't make the changes. Now, obviously, they're trying to, right? Once the game's already like out, they've already sold as many copies as they're realistically going to sell, and they're just trying to salvage the game, they could be a little more responsive. But when they're in production, hell, you know, like spending years and millions of dollars building the game, they don't have time to make huge pivots. They've got these production pipelines. And when you have high fidelity graphics, it is that much more static to what exactly you have in your pipelines. You can't pivot. Like if you just got a bunch of block people, you'd be like, sure, we'll do that this week. Even if you only have three people, but you know, three people like with that same level of graphics, if they were to try and do that, that's the problem right there. Like even if they had the, you were able to use AI to generate that art, it would still be really difficult to deal with that from a technology level to build the gameplay to match that. And so I think that's just, it's just one of those things where people kind of underestimate the value there. Uh, as you were putting out, like just there's, there's lots of value to be gained from that sort of thing. And like, there's room for both to exist on the market. Neither one really needs to like dominate. And I think you, you, you put it out there that we've seen this kind of like, you know, like uh, fall guys or uh, among us or some of these other like sort of smaller game hits that have come out that were just about the gameplay. And, and some of those were just really social dynamics kind of coming out. Uh, and I think that's another thing to think about with these is that sometimes like the lowest fidelity game ever can be amazing if you were playing with the right people, right? Like, I mean, Among Us is just Werewolf and Werewolf is just sitting around in a room with people talking uh, or Mafia, whatever yeah. you want to call it. But like, that's as low fidelity as you get, right? It's just a talking game with some graphics slapped on top. And I think... That's just a valuable lesson for game developers. It's like if you want, if you're, as you said, if you want your audience to have like really great graphics, cool. But like that doesn't mean you sacrifice gameplay to do so. And if you want to, cool. But like at the end of the day, you're gonna be making more cutscenes than you are a, a game. And I, I obviously don't try and replicate seven years of development hell with three people. Uh, maybe keep your expectations a little smaller. But you know, I'd point to something like Vampire Survivor as another great example of like a breakout hit where the dude just like bored during Christmas or something and just made it like for the hell of it as like a like sort of practice thing and because he was one guy and so you never know yeah there are a lot of examples of you know these type these types of games becoming hits and I think there's going to continue to be many more examples in the future we've we've talked in the past about sort of uh, at least sort of like my thesis of what the this kind of next era of the games industry is going to feel like where it's a barbell where on one side the biggest games with the biggest ips and the most modes etc they're just going to get bigger and get reinvested into and just try to get as many people as much time um and a lot of them are going to pull it off um and then on the other side of the barbell is um more the you know the upstart small team triple double a studios the UGC tools that, you know, enable anyone to build and create. And I think there's going to be a ton of really interesting activity that goes on there. And and really, my thesis is that we're going to see a rise in what's going to feel like counter trends in some ways, where we're going to see games that non-professional, non-game developer professionals make that are going to get more attention. We're going to see more people playing in their browsers different games. Um, and we're going to, you know, be seeing more of these, you know, double A kinds of games continue to just stand out in their own um, domains. And I think that that's um, pretty, pretty exciting, but it's going to be really interesting counter trends. And even just like as another example um, with uh, like UEFN Inflate, which is probably going to be like a new major hub where we see some of these examples, um, you know, uh, similar to what we've seen in, in Roblox in the past is. Um, Devin, you sent a link 
over before we started about uh, I think it, Cypher PK uh, is his is his name, and he created a UEFN game called Rocket Wars. It's already rivaling the playtime of games on Steam, like <laughs> Among Us. And so I think we're going to continue to see more, many, many more of these types of games in different forms on different platforms um, continue to to rise and attention and i think that's that's exciting probably the downside is kind of of the barbell the middle probably gets hollowed out a little bit and there are other parts of the industry that it gets harder um to to get attention and really win at certain levels of budget but those two sides of the barbell i at least am very bullish on yeah definitely making me think of the uh the flash era i was i was just gonna say that i was like man i'm I'm excited excited to see that come back i was like yes please uh we saw like so much innovation during the 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 flash era and just like playing around and and quick development and you know not every game had to be like this massive production and i think that we're we're overdue for for another era of that type of, of game development I think it's it's kind of second wave mod, right? Where like we had yeah. the mod errors, you mentioned Quake mods and there was Half-Life mods and that kind of started dying down into so like kind of late into the Half-Life 2 cycle. Uh, just partially because it became really complicated. But now we've got Roblox, we've got UEFN, you've got other alternative stuff like Core. You've got all these platforms now. And, and I think that's extremely helpful. When you have a platform that you can build or Minecraft even, that uh, people could like, first off, they've got an install base where people don't have to download something new. Uh, I mean, obviously, the, the example games we gave earlier were you know installed new, but they were obviously small and easy to download, and Steam made that pretty easy to discover and download them. But also, these platforms make it really easy, and, and that was, I think, one of the advantages Flash had, uh, as you mentioned, playing stuff in the browser, Aaron. Like, uh, it'll, it'll be interesting to see where that goes, because WebGL has kind of like struggled, it seems like, at least with like Unity's WebGL exports. So I'm not sure where we go technology-wise with, with that sort of browser stuff, but it does seem like the actual platforms will get there. And, and I don't know, like now with Roblox potentially uh, moving into VR as it started opening that up, I believe recently, uh, I was just reading about that, I think earlier today, uh, that could then even suddenly VR, you, got, you start seeing pop off because now there's a platform for developing for it that doesn't require this huge complex setup to figure out how to do. So yeah, maybe we're just, we're just moving to another era and uh, maybe a short lived one, but an exciting one for lots of experimentation, new genres, stuff like that. Maybe this is what mobile needs. I know there's been tons of attempts at building platforms on mobile and there's, there's Roblox and stuff like that, but maybe we need something on mobile that sort sort of unleashes this creativity. So we could see lots of new genres emerge and then, the big game companies can copy those and then have new games to acquire users for, basically. My very final comment is that I don't think it's going to be short-lived. I think this is going to be like a defining attribute of the next like extended era, just as um, barriers to entry and barriers to creation fall, AI tools come into play, better modding tools come into play. Like, like This is just going to be much more important for a very long period of time, and I think that's going to be really exciting. Definitely looking forward to it. the AI tools is definitely going to really uh, address some of the fidelity stuff we were talking about, I think as well. So be interested to see how that goes, but you know, we're also interested in what you guys think. So if you have thoughts on this topic or the other topics we discussed, feedback, anything you want to say as well to uh, any of the previous podcasts also uh, make sure to email podcast at novic.co. So we're always looking out for good questions, good comments, things like that to share here on the air. 
as we've done in the past. So definitely do so. Uh, but we want to thank the, the panelists here for a great discussion. Uh, lots of great topics, as always, as uh, this business doesn't seem to stop moving forward. So we will, of course, uh, see you guys next week. Make sure to catch you then. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.